Al Jazeera podcast. Earthquakes, floods, fires, storms, and drought. Natural disasters have ravaged many parts of the world on a scale not seen in decades. With this unprecedented rise, can countries alone deal with the consequences? And should a global agency be created? I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's go ahead and bring in our guests. In London is Zaid Belbaji, managing partner at Hardcastle Advisory, a geopolitical consultancy. In Islamabad is Nilofar Afridi Qazi, disaster management specialist and public policy advisor. And in Lake Oswego, Oregon is Andrew Phelps, vice president of planning and risk reduction with AC Disaster Consulting. Uh, a warm welcome to you all, and thank you all so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Nilofar, let me start with you today. Uh, with this unprecedented rise that we're seeing in natural disasters around the globe, can countries alone actually deal with the consequences? Or from your perspective, should a global agency that specifically deals with trying to react to these uh, emergencies be set up? The answer is uh, a little complicated because uh, it's we, of course, need a global uh, forum to facilitate a, a global crisis, a, a common crisis, uh, a common threat to humanity, which the United Nations does uh, have, in fact. I mean, they, ha- they have been uh, uh, facilitating a global conference and uh, bringing together over 194 countries, if I'm correct, the UNFCC, which is the United Nations Framework for uh, the Convention on Climate Change. And as a result of that, uh, they've had many uh, uh, meetings, global sub-meetings to deal with it. COP, you know, many people are aware of the COP, the, uh, you know, the committee of parties uh, who come together and then uh, supposedly come to a consensus on what uh, the world and what should particular countries uh, uh, achieve uh, for this common goal of this existential crisis, real crisis that we have. The problem is that um, at a theoretical level, uh, there is an agreement, but on a practical level, the individual nations have to uh, commit to certain uh, changes, reforms, which then their domestic politics or geopolitics then comes into a factor where those commitments then uh, fall out of line. So, for example, um, who is to bear the burden of it, the financial burden of it? Uh, 12% of the global population um, is responsible for 50%, if not 80% of the emissions which has created this crisis, the climate change crisis, as a result of altering um, the weather patterns and melting the glaciers and creating, you know, um, havoc uh, which have direct impact on uh, uh, lives from... uh, earthquakes mm. to uh, flooding, etc. So at one level, the responsibility is all of ours, mm-hmm. but then uh, the aggressors or those who are actually contributing towards it um, are only primarily 12%. Mm-hmm. So will they be taking the charge for the burden for reform? 
Um, and then on the other hand, we are individual nations. So what are we doing to mitigate at a national mm. level? So this is a very complex kind of a question where um, should we, you know, uh, tackle this globally? We are attempting to, but we have failed. Uh, Zaid, uh, let me ask you, um, in the aftermath of, of these natural disasters, we often do see that, that politics does play a role. Um, let me talk to you specifically about Morocco, the devastating earthquake that's taken place uh, in the past few days. Uh, there's this rift that's been going on between Morocco and France, and, and one of the... One of the things that's happened as a result of that is, is that Morocco has not accepted offers of help from France. So if an agency were to be set up at some point in the future that would try to deal with uh, global emergencies, natural disasters, would politics still be as problematic as they are today? I, I guess what I'm trying to say is would an agency of this nature need to have uh, autonomy and authority to be able to step in and help a country automatically rather than have to seek its permission and perhaps have that permission not be granted. Thank you, Mohammed. And very briefly, I'll just extend my condolences to those we lost in Libya and in Morocco. I think you're spot on. Um, there will be issues with regards to the autonomy of such an entity. With regards to France and its role in this, um, in this saga... Um, it's extraordinary how France has chosen a moment of national crisis to, to play geopolitics. And um, unfortunately, it's only Mr. Macron who has himself to blame for the lull in relations. Uh, Morocco was the first country he visited as president. And sadly, because of his other policies, he's now damaged quite serious um, relationships that he had in that part of the world. With regards to Morocco and its response, I think the response has been telling of a country that's really changed gear and is able to, in a more multipolar fashion, manage its international relationships because of the conditions upon aid and various other reasons that, uh, that have been mentioned. I think with regards to a, an organization going forward that would look after um, natural disasters, this is very much something that we should bear in mind. And I think I would like to add, if, you, if you'd let me, um, an organization of such internationally is a priority, but the, in the Arab world it's a must. The Arab world is first and foremost facing the effects of climate change. The Arab world has heated twice in the last four decades compared to the rest of the world in the last two centuries. And the effects of climate change will cause instability in the Arab world way before, you know, youth unemployment and poor governance will. So in the Arab world, this is a priority. And how the politics of that will be managed will definitely be interesting. And the Moroccan example is definitely um, a step in the right direction. Andrew, from your vantage point, is there a need to establish the kind of agency that we are talking about today, a, a, an international agency, an umbrella group of sorts that would actually deal with natural disasters going forward? I think it's a tremendously valuable concept and idea. We know that the UN has done work uh, in this in this uh, area, uh, trying to bring international aid, humanitarian assistance, and relief to uh, countries that have been impacted by disaster. But disaster response, as you've heard from the other panelists, is incredibly complex. Time is of the essence, and the first hours or days after a, a disaster is really the most important time to get that aid where it's most needed. Rescue teams, medical teams, getting folks evacuated into a more stable shelter so they can be cared for, receive medical attention. 
we struggle with this uh, in the United States uh, sometimes. Uh, we can all remember the 2017 hurricane season and the challenges with uh, our national response to Puerto Rico. Uh, it is an incredibly complex uh, operations to, to move resources where they are needed, when they're needed. Uh, to do that at the global scale uh, is even more complex than just an individual country responding to disaster uh, within their own borders. You add to this the geopolitical concerns, the fact that uh, oftentimes in many countries, disaster response and relief is a role of the military that further complicates uh, existing relationships. Uh, so whatever authority could be established would certainly need a level of autonomy, support, financial support, and buy-in from participating nations to ensure that those political barriers, the politics of the day, mm. doesn't influence our ability to get aid to, to where it's needed the most. Yeah, Andrew, let me just follow up with you, because you mentioned the complexities of, of setting up such a body. You talked about uh, geopolitics. You talked about buy-in. I mean, uh, let me ask you, I mean, from your vantage point, is setting something like this up right now? Uh, in the current geopolitical climate, what's going on around the world, tensions rising as well. Is it actually possible? What would it take to actually get this off the ground? As an emergency manager, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, and I think that uh, it's inherent in the human spirit to want to help our neighbors, whether those are our next-door neighbors or neighbors uh, halfway around the world. Uh, we do see uh, efforts to, to respond to humanitarian crises, to uh, disasters uh, from hundreds of countries uh, in, in their time of need. Uh, but there's a lack of coordination. Uh, there's a lack of, of consistency uh, in how this aid and these responses are coordinated. Uh, it, 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 we, we need a system, a mechanism to ensure uh, mm. that regardless of where a country is, when it's impacted, that there's a consistent level of aid that's able to be provided uh, to the folks that, that need it and that are suffering the most. Uh, Nilifer, it, it looked to me like you wanted to jump in, so I'm going to give you that opportunity. But I, but I also want to ask you as well, if an agency like this were created, would it actually help level the playing field when, when disasters would strike in developing countries and poorer nations? Okay, I, just to answer the first question, COP2627 uh, already established that very uh, platform. So uh, Pakistan led and chaired it in, um, in Egypt, and it uh, resulted in a loss and damage fund. So the modalities of that uh, were, of course, vague, but it, it was acknowledged by all those who have signed up uh, for uh, climate change, the climate change uh, agenda, that uh, there is a requirement for a financial uh, um, response to those most vulnerable. So in COP26, in fact, it was one of the four outcomes that there will be a mobilization of funds uh, managed uh, independently, uh, I imagine the United Nations would be, you know, the platform uh, representing the globe. Um, and accordingly, those that were most affected by climate change would be able to access that finance. So this is uh, beyond the question that should we or can we, because mm. it has already been raised. It has actually already been discussed mm. over the last five years, I mean, in two global conferences. Now it's a matter of, you know, those who are responsible for um, 
the climate damage uh, to add financing, and then how should countries most affected? Now, one of our panelists spoke of the impact of Africa as disproportionate, you know, to other parts of the world. If we look at the German, uh, there was a German study by a climate change index of which countries were most affected. Pakistan is number eight. You know, um, most of, uh, will be and is uh, most affected by the varieties of impact of climate change. And just in my, the 15 years that I have returned to Pakistan, I have seen earthquakes, we've mm. seen glacier melts, we've had floodings, you know, we've had multiple uh, natural disasters, you know. Uh, we see it in Iran as well, you know, uh, next doors multiple times. So we are sitting in an area here where the natural disasters disasters as a result of climate change is much larger than mm -hmm. the potential mitigation measures mm -hmm. that the national, con you know, the national governments are able to, you know. So uh, who is responsible? I think we are quite clear on that in terms of who has contributed towards uh, the climate change uh, speed. Um, now, how are we supposed to mitigate that? Nilofer, uh, I'm sorry. Nilofer, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. Let, let me get back to you on that point shortly because I see Zaid and, and he's been reacting to what you're saying, and it also looks like he wants to jump in and add to what you've been saying. Uh, Zaid, please go ahead. I like what uh, Nilofer was saying, and I will add, you know, that these countries uh, are really on the cusp of it. However, I would add that the balance of power in the world is shifting. That is a fact. We saw that recently with the invitation of developing countries to the G20, with the recent BRICS summit in South Africa. And I don't think attributing blame is helpful. Rather, the developing world, for want of a better phrase, uh, you know, emerging markets, whatever you want to call them, are moving in the world. And I think in Morocco's response, we've seen that. France was in uproar that an African Muslim country would not accept its aid. Why? Because France had missed the fact that Morocco has moved. Morocco, had, Morocco dealt with the pandemic incredibly well. It was the fourth, fourth quickest country in the world to vaccinate. You know, people don't realise on Friday night, the roads of Marrakesh were being tarmacked, trees were being planted, because Morocco's expecting to host the IMF and the World Bank, the first time that these meetings are happening outside Washington since 1976. Ladies and gentlemen, a Jazeera exclusive, Morocco still intends to host 19,000 of the world's great and good in three weeks' time in Marrakesh after a major earthquake because it is a developing country on the move. So I think as the balance of power in the world shifts, rather than attributing blame to the developed world, developing countries need to work together and to have disaster response reflective of their growing position in the world, much as how the Moroccans have not let themselves be, you know, portrayed as a developing country in aid. Rather, they are moving forward and are going to host the world remarkably in three mm. weeks' time. This is very moving. And, Zaid, let me just add, obviously, even if Morocco does intend to continue to host that and, and does, that does not mean there will not be complications due to the aftermath of the earthquake. We should obviously make that clear. Nilofer, I see that you want to jump in. I will let you in just a minute, but I need to ask Andrew a question. Andrew, uh, international agencies like different branches of the UN uh, or the Red Cross or the WAFP, uh, they're often on the front lines uh, when it comes to responding to a natural disaster. 
But right now we're at a time where we're seeing so many natural disasters uh, back to back. It seems that these agencies are really constantly stretched thin. Isn't that right? Well, it, it is. It's true around the globe. We've we've gone past disaster response and recovery and have reached this stage of, of disaster endurance. It's one thing after another. And, you know, for the last three or four years, uh, almost, we've we've done every disaster uh, under the cloud of the COVID pandemic as well, further complicating disaster responses. Uh, my colleagues raise very valid points about responsibility and, and the need to, to take a level of responsibility across the world uh, for the impacts of climate change. But we also have to look at how we build and where we build uh, across the world. Uh, disasters are not natural. They are directly attributed to how we build and where we build, further exacerbated by our changing climate. Uh, those that are most significantly impacted by disasters are often the ones who can least afford it. Uh, and it's true here in the United States, and, and I think it's uh, true around the world. Uh, so to be able to leverage uh, the global will and resources uh, when it's needed most, whether it's through mm. nonprofit organizations, voluntary organizations, is absolutely critical. But to coordinate this issue of, of a global disaster response uh, could be a game changer in those underdeveloped countries, in those developing countries that, that need a little extra assistance. But what we see in Morocco, what we see around the globe, uh, is an inherent resilience in a lot of communities. Uh, we see an ability to reduce risk uh, after disasters. A uh, great example is Bangladesh. In the 70s, they had a, a, a cyclone that killed mm. half a million people. They made significant changes to communications and sheltering infrastructure. 20 years later, another cyclone in 1991, still devastating, killed 140,000 people. But we see progress there. Fast forward to 1997, another cyclone uh, killed 1,000 people. So we see incremental changes uh, based on what we experience uh, from a disaster, uh, but we don't take these mm. lessons and turn them into to policy. So uh, globally, until policymakers open their ears, uh, open their eyes, and, and quite frankly, open their, their checkbooks uh, to, to fund disaster risk reduction initiatives, make communities more resilient, and ensure we're not building uh, in a way and in places mm. that put our most vulnerable at further risk, we're going to continue to be in this disaster cycle and, and, and never escape it. Uh, Nilofer, I, I saw you reacting to what Andrew was saying. I also saw you reacting to what Zaid was saying. I know you want to jump in. Please go ahead. I cannot uh, agree more with both of them. Uh, the conversation earlier was at a macro level, but at a micro level, national level, I cannot agree with you more. And I have argued in every Pakistani forum that what is Pakistan doing to build resilience within itself? Where are the budget lines for disaster risk reduction um, since 2005? What lessons have we learned so that the repeated floods, the known floods, uh, when they come, will they uh, impact the poorest of the poor? Have we uh, diverted uh, money for uh, building better, or what we call uh, building, uh, you know, since 2005, uh, where we lost 86,000 people, we needed to resettle people away from the river, uh, riverines where the uh, flood 
the flood paths are, we haven't done it in 23 years. We've, we've seen the impact of that happen over and over again. Do we have a population uh, which is above the poverty line, et cetera, et cetera. All the various uh, points that you raised. When you gave examples of Bangladesh and Morocco, I mean, you know, like, uh, it, it actually breaks my heart. I mean, you know, Bangladesh at one point was, you know, East Pakistan, and they have, uh, you know, incredibly move forward, you know, in terms of building resilience uh, mm. within their population. Pakistan has not. Mm. And uh, so when we have this conversation on uh, responsibility, I mean, it's at two levels. You see, when you're talking about at a global level, that is what I was talking about. You know, mm. you look at who you know, who is responsible, and then they put, you know, their percentage of how much money they need to put in or resources for at a, at a macro level. But at a in, at a national level, it is in, extremely and equally important that what are their governments doing to mitigate and build resilience. And Pakistan hmm. is nowhere near uh, making those commitments outside of the rhetoric. Uh, Zaid, uh, I want to ask you uh, more specifically about the resilience of the Moroccan people right now, uh, and especially when it comes to the efforts of the Moroccan diaspora communities around the world. I know that you've been involved when it comes to trying to uh, organize uh, fund drives and get aid to victims uh, of the earthquake. Uh, first, I want to ask you, do you feel that enough is being done by the international community? I also want to ask you about the fact that, obviously, it's very difficult to coordinate efforts when it comes to getting aid to affected areas, uh, a, a natural disaster. Um, would you feel more comfortable if you knew that there was a sort of umbrella agency that was actually in charge of making sure that everything was coordinated and all the aid was getting through in one particular way? Is that something that would make you more comfortable? Um, answering your questions in turn, Mohammed. first of all, with regards to resilience, you will be aware that in 1960, a 5.8 magnitude earthquake hit Agadir, just uh, southeast of, southwest of Marrakesh, which killed 15,000 people. A much worse earthquake this weekend, unfortunately, took the lives of 2,000 because the country has moved forward, much like Bangladesh, with respect to flooding. In terms of the way that these disasters are managed, I think, um, of course, it would be better to have an autonomous body that is dealing with these, I know for a fact that the Moroccan response will be to have their own internal state-of-the-art facilities to do this, because that's the new messaging in Morocco. Morocco wants to do this on its own and do it going forward. With regards to the national solidarity, I would first like to um, give kudos to Al Jazeera for raising this issue and raising how these um, disasters are being managed in the, uh, in the global south, because the media discourse has been so terribly negative vis-à-vis -vis Morocco dealing with this as an independent, sovereign and functional developing country that almost the story of the overwhelming national solidarity has been drowned. It will come through in, very, in, in eventual weeks and months, mm. but it's, it's at a scale which is completely heartwarming. And um, I would like to salute you for, for you know, raising attention to that. And it's almost very telling that, you know, in countries like France, it's such an abhorrent prospect for an African country to be successfully dealing with this on its own that it just shows you how um, mm. the global discourse on this issue needs to move on, especially as Nilofar has, uh, 
has said that it's the developing world which will be suffering from this the most. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Zaid Belbaji, Nilofer, Afridi Khazi, and Andrew Phelps. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Katya Lopez-Odoyan, Fungi Nguyen, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Deepak Pushkaran. The program was edited by Alexander Otashevich, Zainab Adr, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Thursday for our next episode. Coming up on The Take, will a new protest movement in Syria be successful? We speak to some of the people who are out on the streets. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.